right? I mean, there are many people who said they were like hardcore atheists. And then when they started to think about simulation hypothesis, they said, well, okay, I guess the programmers would seem to us like supernatural beings. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Riz Verk, who founded the Play Labs at MIT, has produced several films and video games, and has authored several books, including his latest work, The Simulated Multiverse. In this conversation, we explore the topics that Riz has been exploring in relation to the simulated multiverse, including the simulation hypothesis, quantum physics, spirituality, and a whole lot more, including the many different ways that culture has been obsessed with this idea since the dawn of time. And speaking of time, I don't want to waste any more of yours, so let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Riz Verk. All right, then. So, I mean, obviously, one of the main reasons we're talking here today is because you recently released a book. I think it was in October called The Simulated Multiverse, and it covers probably some of the most meta philosophical and like challenging concepts that possibly exist in the realm of technology and reality itself. So I'm wondering, given your background, what was it that attracted you to a subject that is such a rabbit hole of a topic and for those who may not be familiar could you just kind of lay out some of the basic concepts that underlie the idea of the simulation hypothesis or the simulated multiverse yeah absolutely so you know my background is as a uh, entrepreneur uh, in the video game industry and the software industry uh, and then uh, i shifted to being an investor and after i sold my last uh, video game company Back in 2016, I, I, I visited a startup in Marin County, r- right across the, the bay from San Francisco, and they had a virtual reality um, uh, room, and they were developing a VR ping pong game. And so I put on the virtual reality headset, and I started to play you know, this table tennis game in virtual reality with a virtual opponent and a virtual table. And it was so realistic, not, not so much the graphics, but the responsiveness of the game was so realistic that my body instinctively thought I was really hitting a ball across an actual table. So much so that at the end of the game, I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table, just like I might if I was playing a real table tennis game. Well, there there was no table, so the controller fell to the floor. I almost fell over and I said, whoa, so I did a bit of a double take. And so that, that got me thinking a little bit about you know what it would take to build fully immersive virtual environments. Now, obviously I knew I was in virtual reality. If you had asked me, I could have told you, but it was my body that was fooled. And so uh, I, I decided to, to lay out what I call the, the road to the simulation point. And the simulation point being a theoretical point, it's kind of a technological singularity. Uh, you know, not so much about AI, although AI is included, but it's a point of no return beyond which human life could be very different. Uh, and so that point is where we can create uh, realistic virtual reality simulations that are so immersive 
that are rendered in such high fidelity that we will not be able to distinguish them from physical reality. Uh, and that, of course, could lead to all kinds of problems and, and philosophical questions, uh, you know, that were explored in, in, in many different books as well. But, you know, you might think of it as the point at which we could build a matrix. Right? And so that's really what got me to go down, you know, this rabbit hole of the simulation hypothesis, which is the idea that we may already be inside a virtual reality like the matrix. And so the core idea there is that what we think of as physical space, right, everything around us is not real physical space. What we think of as matter is not real matter. It's more like a pixelated environment that gets generated and rendered as we need to, to see it. And so that's really what got me down the first part of the rabbit hole. So, you know, I then looked at uh, some of the mysteries of quantum mechanics, uh, particularly what's called the observer effect or more formally quantum indeterminacy. And I looked at the, the most popular interpretations that physicists have had, which were in the Copenhagen interpretation, which is about the collapse of the probability wave or the uh, multiverse interpretation uh, from uh, uh, Wheeler student, Hugh Everett, back in the 60s, which now is getting much more popular amongst physicists, even though they, they did, dismissed it. And, and I realized that simulation theory provided a bridge and a way to talk about it. We can get into more details on that in the future, uh, you know, in a few minutes in the podcast. But uh, and then I looked at, you know, what the mystics have been telling us all along. Right. And, and so the mystics have been telling us that the physical world is not the real world, uh, whether it's the Eastern religions and Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, or even in the Western religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And so th that led me to write that first book. And, uh, you know, I thought, okay, that, that's good. Let me go back to my career in Silicon Valley and in academia. I was running a virtual reality program at MIT for a couple of years. Uh, but, but then, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine from Google afterwards um we were in mountain view which is where the googleplex is located and he had just started working for them as a friend of mine from boston where i used to live and he had come out and said hey let's have coffee and we did and so of course we were talking about my book which had just come out and he said hey have you heard of this weird thing called the mandela effect i said yeah i've heard of it you know it's one of those fringe topics that people bring up it's probably just faulty memory he said well you know the simulation theory thing is, is probably a good explanation for it and I said, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really, you know, thought too much about it. Uh, so uh, it was reminding me of a conversation that I had uh, when I was writing the book. I actually interviewed uh, science fiction writer Philip K. Dick's wife, uh, Tessa B. Dick. And, uh, you know, she still lives in Southern California. And she's written a couple of books uh, about uh, Philip K. Dick and his writings. Uh, and so during that interview, you know, she told me some interesting things uh, about him and his belief that there are actually multiple timelines. And so to make a long story short, uh, you know, I started to think about this idea of what is time, right? So the first book was about the fact that space is not what we think it is. And the more I delve into this idea of what is a timeline, uh, inspired by Philip K. Dick's writings and a speech he gave in Metz, France, uh, which, uh, you know, many people have heard the quote from his speech, which said, we are living in a computer programmed reality and the only clue we have to it is when some variable has changed or some alteration in our reality occurs. Uh, and the Wachowskis who had you know, uh, written The Matrix were inspired by Philip K. Dick among others. Um, and uh, so 
you know, that quote is, is kind of brought out now and then. So I went back and looked at his entire speech and I kind of scratched my head and said, well, this guy's talking about some really interesting ideas that it wasn't so much about the simulation. I mean, it was, that line was ad-libbed by the way, it wasn't there in the actual written version of the speech that he had taken with him. Uh, but, you know, he had to cut down the speech because of the French translator. And you can find those clips online. Uh, it's all over YouTube now. But this, the rest of the speech in the second half of that statement was actually about changing variables and rerunning that same timeline again. And so, you know, he came to believe that the man in the high castle, which was a popular Amazon series about with Germany and Japan having won World War II and split the United States in you know between them. Uh, with the Japanese ruling the West Coast and, and uh, the Germans ruling the East, he came to believe that that was what he called actual residual memories of another timeline and not just fiction, right? And so, so his speech was actually about multiple timelines. So then I started to really get you know, heavy duty into this idea, like, is it possible that there are multiple simultaneous histories, which was a term that was used by Erwin Schrodinger, a uh, famous physicist, uh, and, and then I realized that, well, the, the simulation theory gives you a way to do that, because if you can run one simulation, uh, I mean, if you're going to run a simulation, you probably will run more than one. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's the whole point of running simulations is we run them, we change the variables, we run them again, and we see what is the likely outcome, uh, what is the most optimal outcome. So anyway, that's kind of a, a long answer for how I got to writing both books, but I think it gives you a flavor of, of how I got into this uh, and uh, you know, where it has taken me as uh, on an intellectual journey. Yeah, you touched on so much there. I want to try to take them one by one. And one of the things that I find interesting about what you said is the fact that Philip K. Dick, you know, wrote a lot about this. You mentioned the Matrix. Um, and honestly, throughout time, it feels like ever since like Plato's cave up through all kinds of narratives and stories and philosophies, it seems like we've been really obsessed with this idea. Do you think like we're struggling to to just make sense of reality or do you think that maybe people are just uh, coming to a place of wisdom where this is just what makes the most sense and we don't have the tools to explain it? Like, why do you think this is such an appealing part of our culture that just refuses to go away? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right in that it's been around. The idea has been around in many forms for really many thousands of years, right? We talked, you talked about Plato's cave, mm -hmm. the allegory of the cave where what they were seeing was actual shadows on the wall, but they thought they were seeing reality. And then, you know, the Vedas, which are like the oldest written uh, religious scriptures talk about this idea of Maya or illusion or the Leela, which is a carefully crafted play. And then, you know, as you move forward in time, you find these same recurring themes again and again, every, you know, few hundred years, it seems to get popular again. You know, even Shakespeare had his famous statement about uh, all the world's a stage, right? So we're back to a play and the men and women are merely players playing their roles. Um, and then you have the idealists, idealists of the 19th century, like uh, Bishop Berkeley. Uh, but the idea does seem to keep coming around again and again. And I think that in, in modern times, um, modern meaning these days, depending on how you define modern, right? There was sort of a, a technological uh, you know, determinism that came 
with the industrial revolution. We thought we had everything figured out and that everything is going to proceed in the, nor in the natural way. This is inevitable, right? I mean, one of the things that I'm doing now is I'm working on a PhD in the sociology of science and we find that, well, there are many different ways that a, a path of science or a building technology can go. And usually in the early days, you don't know which one is going to succeed, but usually you end up cutting off different paths, which might have led you to very different conclusions. And so what you know, we think of science is just discovering the reality of nature. But in fact, there's a lot of inputs that determine what kind of reality we're discovering. Mm -hmm. There are filters. It's kind of like if you put in a filter in Google that says, I'm only going to search for you know articles this year, and you just keep trying to find that article from 2010, <laughs> you know, the filter is already there and you can't find it unless you recognize that there are filters that are coming up. And so I think with the introduction of quantum mechanics in the last century, you know, people have begun to question a lot of these ideas uh, of materialism. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting debate. It's been going on for a while, right? It comes back to Max Planck, you know, who is one of the founders of, of, of quantum physics, right? Um, and so, you know, he, he thought consciousness was fundamental and, and material, uh, the material world was, uh, you know, something that came subsequent to that. And so, you know, today, I think that the materialist worldview is that the physical world is all there is, and it is the source of every, everything else is secondary. So consciousness comes from just arranging neurons a certain way. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a dominant paradigm, but there are enough anomalies that lead us to think that perhaps there's something more out there. And the more, you know, I like to say the more physicists look for this thing called matter, they just can't find it. Right? I mean, there is no such thing as matter. So what the heck does that mean? But, but so I think there's something fundamental in human nature to wonder about what's going on. But I think we make assumptions that we have it figured out and we really don't. And I think that's the conclusion that I came to. <laughs> Yeah, you, you mentioned materialism there and determinism, and the and I'm not a definitely not a quantum physicist by any measure. But if I remember correctly, like once you get down to the smaller bits of matter, we we know it's actually like vibrational and more about frequencies to the point where I think it's even been called a quantum foam, right? Yeah, yeah. So quantum foam is a term that's been used. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned the two different interpretations. And in, in the Copenhagen interpretation, the idea is there are probable locations of a particle. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I like to think of it as, well, you walk into a dark movie theater, there's, uh, there's, there's one person in the movie theater, you don't know which seat they're in, and there's certain probabilities that are in each of those. And it's not until you examine with a flashlight each of those seats, you get to see you know, who's there. And so they call that the collapse of the probability wave. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is that the rule of thumb seems to be and there's some argument over what constitutes an observation. Is it just a measurement? Can you just do it with a machine or does there need to be a person? Uh, and then that gets to you know this kind of going back further and say, okay, it's been measured by a machine, but until somebody reads that measurement, <laughs> you, know, you get into that same kind of philosophical question about what constitutes an observation. Uh, but the basic idea was that these probability waves collapse and you render only that which is observed. Mm. Right? Until then, it's only a probability. And well, it turns out in video games, the reason we can build you know, fully 3D environments with avatars roaming around them like Fortnite or World of Warcraft or you know, any, any of the, the more modern um, avatar-based MMORPGs 
whereas we couldn't in the 80s. Now, one reason we couldn't is just the processors were slow. Sure. Right? When I was a kid and we were, you know, I was playing Space Invaders and Pac-Man <laughs> and, you know, these eight bit games, we didn't have enough processing power. But more than that, we didn't know how to keep track of all of those pixels that would need to be rendered in order to have a shared three-dimensional world. And they had to use optimization techniques. And so the way that it works now is that if you and I, just kind of in the same way that we are right now, we're on Zoom, we're not really talking to each other, right? This is a virtual conversation. I am talking to a rendering of bits of information of your face and what you said, and you are doing the same. Uh, well, what if that's exactly what's happening, you know, at a, at a bigger level? Hmm. But in video games, if we were both avatars in the same room, my computer would only render that which can be seen by my avatar, and your computer would render only that which could be seen by your avatar. And then we have this idea of caching, you know, where we can cache the most recent things that were seen by anybody so that we can render them much more quickly. And so for me, that was an interesting way to think about quantum indeterminacy as a sort of optimization technique, right? It was a way to actually render that which needs to be seen on a rendering device. And so, you know, there were some of the parallels that I started to explore uh, in that between simulation and video games versus the physical world and, and quantum mechanics. Yeah, and the benefit there then is that it helps add credence to the simulation hypothesis because it's basically saying you don't have to simulate an entire universe. You can just simulate bits and pieces. So it makes it more credible that we might be able to simulate something as complex as what we consider real life, right? Right, exactly. And and much of, you know, the progress in, in computers is all about optimization mm -hmm. or it's about learning new algorithms. I mean, yes, processor speed helps. But usually when you take an algorithm and you optimize it and you do things differently, that's when you get the order of magnitude, right? You don't get just the 2x or the linear improvement. You get the order of magnitude by doing it differently. And so, you know, I feel like that's, you know, what will lead us to be able to build more realistic simulations in the future as well, right? I mean, we use GPUs now instead of CPUs, right? Mm. And they use slightly different, I, mean, I don't know all the details, but they use slightly different instruction sets and, and, and they're optimized for certain kinds of calculations as opposed to the standard CPUs. And so over time, you know, we will develop even better and better techniques for doing rendering. And that leads to the idea that we someday could produce these realistic video games. Now you might say, okay, well, what does that have to do with us being inside a video game? So certainly we'll be able to produce them and then we'll have the, game, the, the games and there'll be people inside those. So there was a professor at uh, Oxford named Nick Bostrom who came out with a paper back in 2003 called, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? And he came up with what's called the simulation argument. Um, and this is what a lot of people rely on when they say, you know, Elon Musk in 2016, the same year that I was playing ping pong, you know, at a conference, he said, the chances that we are in base reality, i.e. the chances that we are not in a simulation is one in billions. Right? Mm. And so he was relying on Bostrom's argument or a simplified version of it. And so what Bostrom said was, if a technological civilization, uh, either it gets to this point or it doesn't. Right? And he called it post-human. He was a little more concerned about AI uh, uh, than kind of immersive simulations, but the same idea generally applies. Uh, and he said, if it gets to the point, then they'll create not just one simulation, but they'll create many simulations, right? Unless they outlaw it or have a law that says you can't make any simulation. So he actually said there were three possibilities, but really it boils down to two. They never get there, they get there, and they create not just one, 
they create billions of simulations. Why? Because all you have to do is fire up another server in the cloud, right? Yeah. Each of those simulations may have trillions of simulated beings. And so he said, what is the probability that you, a being, are a biological being or a simulated being? Well, first of all, it depends on if any civilization ever reached that point anywhere in the galaxy or the universe. If they did, then there's going to be trillions of beings and billions of simulations and only so many biological beings. Therefore, the chances are very likely that you are as a being are much more likely to be one of these simulated beings than one of these biological beings. And so that was the crux, mm. you know, of his argument. And so this, you know, this brings us to what I, what I like to call the NPC versus the RPG versions right. of the simulation hypothesis. And so NPCs are non-player characters, or I think the original term was non-playable characters, uh, but basically AIs within the games, which aren't that sophisticated today. Now, you know, as we marry AI and conversational techniques with, right now, I'd say AI is being used and machine learning is being used more for generating realistic looking uh, characters and avatars and landscapes using both procedural generation and machine learning. But over time, as you marry them, it turns out it's easier to train AI within simulated environments, right? Uh, so anyway, there's that element of the simulation hypothesis. And then there's a different element, which is the RPG version, which is role, stands for role-playing games. And that is you know, closer to what I was doing with the ping pong game or what the Matrix has. You, you exist outside the simulation and you then have a character that you are playing, you're role-playing within the simulation. Uh, and then you are stuck inside that character for some period of time and you don't necessarily even know it. And I think there's a third area in between the two, which is uploading of your consciousness so that it looks like an NPC, but it's really based on uh, all of your memories and preserving your consciousness uh, within AI. And so that, that's an interesting question. And, you know, Bostrom makes the assumption of substrate independence. He says that mm -hmm. if consciousness works on, uh, biolog on biological neurons, then why wouldn't it work on the uh, on silicon neurons? And so he assumes that's the case. And so, you know, the NPCs in his case think that they're conscious, but you have this kind of interesting one in between, which is, you know, based on biological experience. Between, between the two theories, so you have Nick Bostrom's uh, idea of NPCs where we're all simulated AI, and then you have the RPG version where we exist outside the simulation and are playing characters inside of it. Which one do you favor? Do you lean towards one or the other? Yeah. You know, the first point I like to make about these is that they're not mutually exclusive, right? Mm. So when I go into World of Warcraft, there are NPCs and then there are PCs or player characters. So I, I think that it's it's it doesn't have to be one or the other. Now, Bostrom's math obviously requires pe – most people don't realize this, right? Because it, it requires more NPCs. Otherwise, the math doesn't work, right? Uh, but he doesn't rule out that some of the players in, in the game uh, or in the simulation could be uh, – you know, role-playing from outside. Uh, so I, I tend to find this, this idea of some of us existing outside the simulation and then playing a role and forgetting about it more interesting. So, you know, I find that quite interesting uh, because it, it, it gives us different possibilities for why we're here, what we're here to do. It also raises this, this idea of characters and how we mm. choose characters, right? I mean, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid 
which is the basis pretty much for all modern RPG games. And at the beginning, you would have a character sheet and you would roll the dice and you would say, okay, this, this character is a thief and he's really high in intelligence. This character is, you know, higher in dexterity or strength and is a barbarian or whatever the case. I think it lays out an interesting point that perhaps we are all like this, where we have chosen a character <laughs> to play. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure that I was never meant to be an NBA basketball player, right? <laughs> Uh, even though I love basketball and I had yeah. you know, dreams, maybe I'll be able to do a, a you know, a hook shot like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did, but it, it just wasn't in the cards, right? It, you right. could almost say that it wasn't part of my storyline and part of the attributes that were chosen for me. Now you could say, well, those are done randomly too, and that's fine too. I just find it more meaningful and interesting to think of uh, life and life's challenges as being part of our quests and for us to having chosen possible storylines. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it ties back to the religious side. You know, I mean, I know mostly uh, simulation hypothesis has become acceptable in polite academic company now <laughs> because we get away from the metaphysical side of it, but you can't ignore the metaphysical size side of it, right? In fact, I think there was a British philosopher, I forget who it was now, but he said that, you know, Bostrom simulation argument was probably the most interesting argument for a creator that's come along, mm. come along in like, you know, 2000 years or so. Uh, and, and I like to go back even further. If you look at like the Buddhist interpretations versus the Hindu, you know, interpretations, they both talk about playing a character coming in for a period of time, and then leaving, and then you play another character, right? That's what they call reincarnation or the mm. wheel of samsara, where you go round and round again. Well, what is it that determines what each of those characters is supposed to do? Well, there's a ser I like to think of it as a series of quests and achievements, right? right? That are waiting for that character. And where do they live? They live in a cloud database somewhere, right? And so we pull off the ones that are appropriate for us. And so this gives us an interesting way to talk about some of these metaphysical ideas, which I think you know, have been kind of pushed to the side, like, okay, there's this world and there's this world and, and those two shouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. And so I find that the RPG version of the simulation hypothesis at least gives us a common vocabulary to start to have discussions and conversations. In the end, you know, I think we're all curious about what is the nature of reality and we're curious about these big right. questions. Why are we here? Yeah. Do, do you think we run into the issue of infinite regress with this a little bit? Like, have you come into any solutions or any concepts that might help explain what created the world of the creators? You know what I mean? If we are the simulation and someone made us, who made those people who are running our simulation? You know, that have you come into any solution for that issue? I wouldn't say that I've come into a solution to it per se, uh, but it is an issue that comes up a lot, mm -hmm. which is, you know, if we can create a simulation, then why can't those guys create a simulation? <laughs> and those guys will create a simulation. And what will happen is that we'll start to reduce the computing power, right? Mm. But again, it depends on the nature of the simulation and why did you create the simulation in the first place? So, uh, you know, there's a great movie. So everyone talks about The Matrix, but there was another movie that came out in, in 1999, which used to be the, the the top year for simulation movies. Now it was 2021 because we had four last year, mm. but uh, I digress. So going back to 1999, there was a movie called The 13th Floor, mm. which was based on a, a German show called World on a Wire, which was based on an actual novel from the 1960s uh, called, uh, what was it called? Simulcron 3, I think it was called. And uh, in that movie, uh, they have both NPCs and they have 
PCs or player characters. And what happens is when someone comes from the outside into uh, the world, they take over a character and then they run, they play that character's lives. And so what happens is they build a simulation of like, I think the 1940s uh, and they're in the 1990s or so, say roughly around the turn of the century. And then later he finds out that there was, you know, they're in a simulation from the 2040s or some future time. And uh, so what the person who comes in to play the character from the future tells them is that we created thousands of simulations, right? And yours was the only one which actually created a sub simulation. And so that's why we have to shut it down. <laughs> so mm. we're gonna shut down your simulation. So, you know, the point of the simulation is actually important when you talk about this infinite regress problem. Maybe that is the point to figure out, can we create purely conscious beings within the simulations? Can we create simulations that are as complex as ours? Um, there was a, another philosopher, um, uh, I think his name was Green, who wrote a New York Times op-ed a couple of years ago. And he said, we shouldn't try to find out if we're in a simulation. Why? Because then the simulators might shut us down. So why risk it? <laughs> it was kind of a, Fair enough. <laughs> an updated version of uh, Pascal's wager. He says, well, I don't know if there's a God, but I'm going to assume maybe there is because if I don't, in case, in that small percentage case yep. that there is, well, then I would have done the right thing and I'll be fine. Right? <laughs> it's like the Tower of Babel, you know, don't build the, the tower to God. Right, right. You know, exactly. I'll anger him. What 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 do you think that some of the impetus here for the simulation hypothesis, um, and in terms of its popularity, comes from maybe a, a most religious type of, uh, I guess, transhumanism or like an attempt to avoid nihilism? Like we've moved to a very secular world, but we still have that yearning for something kind of spiritual, and this offers us something in that way. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that, you know. And I've thought of writing a third book, kind of about this idea of simulation as a religion mm -hmm. in a kind in a way um, and because i think that you know, we have become so secular and we've become so material that there's a whole class of people i mean if you look at the biggest religion right in america or at least the fastest growing religion is spiritual but not religious right yeah. <laughs> right that's the box that they'll check it's not Catholic anymore or Muslim or etc. And why is that, right? It's, I think it's because we all have a yearning that there is perhaps some higher order that we don't know about, you know, whether it's purely mathematical or it's something else or it's spiritual. Uh, and we have things like intuition and we have lots of anomalies that we can't explain. And we don't, we can't fully explain it with our materialist uh, you know, theory so far. Now, it could just be we just don't know enough about the material world. But so I, I do think we have this yearning, and I think this opens up the discussion, right? I mean, there are many people who said they were like hardcore atheists. And then when they started to think about simulation hypothesis, they said, well, okay, I guess the programmers <laughs> would seem to us like supernatural beings. Uh, so it's not, you know, maybe, you know, all these crazy things that people have been telling us that we didn't believe, right? If, if you go back to Europe in, in the 18th century, they didn't believe when peasants would tell them stories of rocks falling from the sky. They're like, ha, 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 you stupid peasants, what superstitions you guys are, you know, full of, we're, you know, we've, we're the rational scientists, we're the experts, we figure this out. Well, it turns out there were rocks falling from the sky, <laughs> but our cosmological model didn't allow for it, right? right? And so, you know, whether in the end it's, you know, not, it doesn't necessarily end up meaning that there's going to be something like 
the traditional religions, but whether there are other non-physical dimensions, right? Which gets into this idea of a multiverse as well, that there may be multiple versions of the universe running uh, and we are able to sense or interact with some of these other parallel universes. But, but, but I think there is a sense that there's something more and this gives people a way to open that, you know, open that door and to at least think about it without feeling like they're leaving all irrationality behind. <laughs> yeah, has given that this is such a, a philosophically rich domain, has this exploration for you personally changed you in any way? Like have your viewpoints on the world changed as a result of digging into the, the multiverse, the simulated multiverse? Uh, yeah, I would say that it's, you know, in, in several different ways, uh, it's probably changed me personally. Right. So the first is uh, this idea of life's challenges. Right. And so and, and, and this gets back to the bigger question of what type of a game is it? Is it Grand Theft Auto right? <laughs> where you're trying to like, you know, and in that movie Free Guy, right, they would yeah. the, 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 the player characters would come in and abuse the NPCs. Right. Let's hope not. Uh, yeah. Hopefully not. I don't think that's the point of the game. <laughs> but uh, I find that we all have challenges in life, right? Challenges that come up in different ways, whether it's health issues or financial issues or, you know, family issues, all of these types of issues that come up. And so what if you thought of those, you know, not as just random things that might happen, which they might be, but what if you thought of those as actual quests and challenges that you have to then deal with, right? And perhaps you're going to be given challenges that are tough, but not too tough. Just like in a video game, if you're at level five, you're not quite ready to take on a level 100 challenge, but you might be ready to take on a level 10 challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be something that'll get you there. And so I find in, in some ways, it helps me to keep a perspective uh, when things don't seem to be going well and realize that, well, if I was in a video game and I didn't make it the first time, I wouldn't just give up. I might just go and play. And that's the whole point of the game. So there, there was a phrase that was used by Nolan Bushnell, uh, who is the founder of Atari, you know, which was the first, you know, in the U.S. anyway, the first widely available video game uh, company with uh, uh, Pong, actually, getting back to ping pong, uh, the arcade version. But he used to say, make the games easy to play but difficult to master. Right? Yeah. And that was the formula for building a good game. And I feel like that's a formula for life as well, which is, you know, it's easy to play, but it may be difficult to master. And once you thought, once you think you've mastered one aspect of it, there's another aspect of it, right. Uh, that, that comes up for you. Uh, so that's one way that I'd say it's changed me personally. So that was the personal side of things. Um, and to kind of wrap up here, I guess, since we're coming up on time, what are some of the implications that you see as a computer scientist and an investor? Like, does this stuff make you think that certain trajectories or certain technologies are more likely and you'd be more willing to invest in X versus Y? Like, you think this is a better option than this? And I, I ask specifically because... Um, you know, things like Meta, like you mentioned, uh, you know, Facebook's uh, enterprise here, it seems to be struggling terribly right now. And, and a lot of the virtual reality stuff seems to be struggling uh, like it has quite often every time it's come up. So, like, is this really an inevitable trajectory and are we going about it right? And where would you put your money, I guess? Well, it depends on short term versus long term, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, as I laid out the different stages, 
I had 10 stages to get to the simulation point. And we're at about stage five, four or five, or about halfway there. And so, you know, part of the, the issue with VR today is, you know, it still requires these bulky goggles, right? And so if you look at, uh, you know, within social science studies, we, we, we call them techno-social imaginaries, right? These are visions that are bought into initially by a small group of people, but then eventually by a much larger group of people who have uh, the ability to turn those imaginaries into reality. And so the first uh, imaginary that became really popular around virtual reality was probably Snow Crash, right? The mm. novel by Neil Stevenson, who defined the term the metaverse. And, you know, I actually went back and I, I've been rereading it in detail now because I wanted to figure out what were the pieces of the vision that we're building now. And maybe I'll publish this at some point <laughs> soon. But turns out it wasn't pure VR. It was actually an AR type of goggles. Like there's one scene where the uh, hero, whose name is Hero, protagonist, <laughs> uh, has uh, he, he's on his motorcycle and he puts on these goggles and he's in his room in the metaverse. And he's also you know, going along on the highway, riding yeah. on his motorcycle, because, you know, you could actually see what was going on. So I think, you know, short term AR, maybe a better bet in terms of applications, but even within the AR world, uh, you know, they've been moving towards more enterprise applications. So I, I think it gets down to how is technology adopted? Uh, and uh, what's the low hanging fruit? But over time, I mean, VR is way more popular today than it was in 2016. You know when I when I uh, got involved, and so what I'm finding is that it goes through these waves, right? So even though it's the expectations problem, mm. even back then, you know, people thought VR was going to be the next big consumer thing, and it wasn't. That doesn't mean that it hasn't been successful. It's actually quite successful compared to where it was, and so it's on this upward trajectory. But I really think we need better form factor. Like even I don't like wearing the yeah. the big VR goggles, but as we kind of merge AR and VR. Um, but, but I think where it gets really interesting down the road will be with brain computer interfaces or BCIs, right? Uh, and many of us have probably seen the video of uh, Elon Musk where they put the, the chip in the monkey and then they taught the monkey to play a game uh, with the joystick and then they disconnected the joystick and they just measured the EEG and he was still able to play the game. Coincidentally, what was the game? It was Pong. Right. <laughs> so ping pong keeps coming up in this context, right? But that's an invasive BCI right. with a chip, but there are plenty of non-invasive BCIs out there. So I think that's where it becomes interesting. And so, you know, the second best metaverse imaginary is best well known uh, is uh, Ready Player One, uh, which had much lighter goggles. But you know, he wrote that I think in 2010 is when he published it. And at that point, there were no VR headsets. So he thought he was writing about 2040. But we've already got headsets that are close. Not quite there yet, but except for the form, you know, the size, they're actually getting there. But then he wrote Ready Player Two, which just came out like last year or the year before. And in that, he decided, okay, well, I want to make sure we don't catch up so quickly. <laughs> so he added brain-computer interfaces, right? The, they call it the ONI, the Oasis Neural Interface. And so I think that's where things become interesting uh, is how do we fool the brain into thinking we're fully immersed? Initially, it'll come through things like physics engines and through resolution, but the resolution is there. Like if you watch a movie like Dune or uh, Blade Runner right. 2049, uh, those are sent to the theaters at 2K resolution. I mean, we have monitors now in our homes that are 4K and 8K, so it's not a matter of just pixels. Right? It's a matter of how quickly can you update those pixels and calculate in real time, which is going to require better algorithms it gets back to 
you know, optimization techniques. Mm -hmm. So I, I think those types of things could be quite interesting and emerging. And this idea of digital objects being able to move around in the world, which is now being backed up by cryptocurrency. So I think there's, you know, there are a lot of interesting developments, right? Um, and, and the future always changes from what we think it was going to be, right? Like with the, with, from Snow Crash to Ready Player One, it was about 20 years. Mm. Uh, in the first, there was no wide worldwide web when he wrote the first book. By the second one, there was. Uh, and so in the first book, the metaverse incorporated the internet. It was the same thing. In the second one, it incorporated the web and Windows <laughs> within the virtual environment. So things will evolve differently from what we imagined. And that's where, you know, lots of startups come into play, mm. which I think is interesting. You know, you've got a lot of startups out there doing AI characters, uh, doing different types of avatars. You can uh, take uh, across different worlds. Uh, different types of virtual objects that you can buy and then you can use inside different worlds. I, I think that that's where, you know, I would look in the short term and in the long term, BCIs is an interesting area, but it's not going to be in the next few years. Right. 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 Well, as we come up on time here, Riz, which I want to respect for you, uh, do you have any closing thoughts and anything you'd like to tell people about? If I'm correct, I believe your audiobook version just came out maybe yesterday. Um, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So for the simulated multiverse, uh, I just released the audio book and uh, it's available now uh, uh, on Audible, Amazon, and will be on other platforms pretty soon. They can also read the first chapter of the simulated multiverse, as well as the simulation hypothesis on my website, which is uh, zenentrepreneur.com. Wonderful. And we'll link those in the show notes. Riz, I want to thank you for taking your time, man. I, uh, I really appreciate this uh, crazy conversation. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. It's always uh, interesting to get into these meta-philosophical discussions with technology. <laughs> <laughs>